Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, though we will only be reading from 26 to 38. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. This is God's word. We've been looking at the values of Metro Presbyterian Church. Uh, We do this customarily in the beginning of the year. And we're beginning to wrap up, and we're talking about movement here. And uh, when we talk about movement, what we mean is this, that the kingdom of God advanced not through means of subversion, but by means of conversion. That's how the church grew. Christianity was born into a culture that was hostile and resistant to its claims, just as it is today, but it spread so rapidly and so powerfully, it changed the society. And so when Christianity was most potent, lives were being added through conversion. And when Christianity is most potent today, lives are being added through conversion. Lives and lifestyles are changing and transforming. So this passage, um, we're looking at the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch. It teaches us three quick things about how conversion happens, the nature of conversion. What is it? And so we see three points here, conversion being an upward experience, conversion being an outward experience, and conversion being an inward experience. The upward, the outward, the inward. Three points. First, conversion needs the spirit. It's an upward thing. It needs the spirit, an upward agent who produces conversion, who regenerates our hearts. You see this in the first four verses, verses 26 through 29. It's very, very specific if you read this. There's this divine direction that comes from God, an instruction to Philip and the apostles. Verse 26, he's told to go south to the desert road, very specific, to the desert road to Gaza. And you get to verse 29, he says, go to that chariot. So you're getting very, very specific. Go to the chariot, stay near it, join this chariot. And so Philip, seeing that this chariot is moving down the road, is literally, as he's prompted by the Spirit, he's being sensitive to his circumstances, his, the opportunity that he sees. He's running near this chariot. It's moving, and literally he's running 
And it's because the Spirit told him to do it. God had told him to do this. And basically what he says to this man who's sitting in a chariot, I see you're reading something. The man says, yes, I'm reading. And he's literally running, on, he's running alongside this chariot. Now, think about this. You'd never make up this kind of story. It would be absurd in those days to write like this, to sell to people. Number one, it's boring. It's too boring. If you read ancient literature, especially in those days, it was never written like this. It was too boring. This is too dull. This type of fictional genre where you talk about the details, the specific details, the the boring details, the dull details, didn't even really emerge until maybe the last century. And so uh, Luke here, we know the author is not writing fiction. He's telling us news. He's writing history. The Spirit generates, produces The Spirit is involved. God's Spirit is involved in every aspect of conversion. Now, why is that? Jesus, in the end of Matthew, very famous passage, we call it the Great Commission. He's sharing the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. He's saying, I want my message of salvation through the grace of God alone to spread to all nations, all people groups, not just for you. And he commands us. On one hand, Jesus commands us with the Great Commission. He commissions us, and yet he's needed to constantly move us. Constantly move us. And that's what he's doing with Philip here. Philip would never, this chariot is already on the move. Philip, if you think about the context, here's Philip, a religious person of sorts, running to somebody who is an Ethiopian, a different language group, a different cultural group, who's already moving away in a chariot, going back. He never would have done this on his own. And yet, he catches up to this stranger to speak to him. Why did he do it? It's because he was compelled. He sensed a compulsion to do that by God. The Spirit moved him, reminded him. And uh, that's what we mean when we say that we're sensitive to God's Spirit in every opportunity where we are, whether we are educating our children at home or whether we are in our workplaces. These days, our sensitivity works the opposite. We want to be sensitive to not share with other people. But we are compelled by grace, compelled by love. You, you have the sensing as you build relationships. You know. Now, what produced this conversion? It's the Spirit of God. This Ethiopian, this man's an Ethiopian, we know that the Spirit of God has gone beyond racial and ethnic and cultural and language boundaries. And this should be a comfort to us. This should be a comfort to us, absolutely. The Spirit's active work in our conversion, is, it should be a comfort because what it tells us is that God is so mindful of his people. He's so planned out. He's so specific. His work is so powerful, and yet and it has effect. That means you can't outrun God's Spirit. You could be not acknowledging Him, not acknowledging Him, not thankful for Him, not thinking of Him, not mindful of Him. You could be running away from Him, rejecting Him every day of your life, and yet you will never outrun Him. You will never be able to totally walk away from Him because He will. John chapter 6 no one is beyond God's reach. Jesus says, No one comes to the Father lest the Son of Man draws him. Now, when we hear that, we say, oh, that's God nurturing. That's Jesus nurturing. The Son of Man has to nurture us in. That's actually not what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. No one comes to the Father lest the Son of Man draw him. That word draw 
is not like you pitching something, pitching a, a bucket into a well and kind of drawing water out. It's the image of a prisoner who is running away from his captor and you've got this lasso around him and you're pulling him against his will. Jesus says no one outruns the Father. No one can outrun if the Son of Man is drawn in. And because of this, the Spirit desires for all social barriers, all economic barriers to be overcome. So the Spirit wants Philip to run to this chariot. He wants us to run beyond our culture, beyond our race, to be compelled by God. Now, if you're, what, it, what this tells us is this. If you're looking down at other cultures, either with superiority or some sort of disdain, if you're looking down at other ethnic groups, um, if you're looking down at other socioeconomic classes, you know, we, tend to, we tend to either over-adapt to a culture or we tend to under-adapt to a culture and reject the culture. We tend to assimilate completely and forget what we are called to, or we tend to reject other cultures completely and we'll never be able to connect. So if you're looking down at other cultures or ethnic groups, other classes, you're going against the Spirit of God. If you're over-adapting to one culture, you're forgetting your Christian culture. You're, you're rejecting another culture. If you're under-adapting to a culture and you're saying, you know what, I reject you, then you're rejecting that culture and you're never going to be able to connect. You're never going to be able to plug people in. You're going against the Spirit of God. And we do that oftentimes because, in many ways, we do that because our self-worth is so often based on something that we feel is better in our cultural makeup or our ethnic makeup, um, or it could be our educational makeup or our status. It's better than other people. The gospel is apart from these things. And that's why it's Philip who's running to this Ethiopian. The gospel is apart from these things. The Spirit comes regardless of your credentials. The Spirit comes regardless of your pedigree. The Spirit comes into your ego and overcomes your ego and goes beyond your ego to see your brokenness and to see the brokenness of others and uses you for that. When you see that, we realize we're all part of the same plan. We're all, number one, we're all on the same plane. We're all, we're all part of this plan. And uh, you can look at your culture with more realism and you can see that all cultures have merits and all cultures are broken. And the gospel exposes that. I'm always reminded by this, um, one of uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, one of, his, one of his most famous writings, he talks about this keyhole and uh, he basically shares this, lends this image of a keyhole that you look through and he says, you know, you look through this keyhole and he sees this naked woman, this woman who's undressing. And he's aroused by that. And he sees, beyond her knowledge of him being able to see, he sees all of her great, wonderful features, but he also sees all of her flaws and imperfections. And he's able to see that, and she has no idea. And he says it gives him this sense of power, and it gives us a sense of superiority over this woman until he realizes he is naked, and there's a keyhole behind him. The gospel has this way of exposing the brokenness of all of our culture, all of our individual beings for that matter, as well as all the merits, all the beauty. And so it allows us to not just embrace our own culture, but to embrace other cultures. 
and not just to look at our culture, our own culture with a realistic eye, but to look at other cultures with a realistic eye as well. And so if you get the gospel, you will be compelled to use the gospel to undermine your own heart, to stay with people just like you, right? That's the undermining. You are going to undermine your own heart to stay with people just like you and to run to other types of people because all cultures are broken. All cultures need grace. And so the Spirit of God, it works just as well in one culture as in others. And it leads us and compels us. You know, it's the, it's the producer. It's the regenerator of conversion in his people, in God's people. So it's this active work of the Spirit in conversion. That's the upward. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, to push us, to go to places we do not want to go, to be in places we do not want to be. In fact, that's the heart of the reason why Metro Presbyterian Church is planted in the city. It's a lot easier to plant a church in the suburbs. It's a lot easier. Right now we're preparing a, the possibility of planting a second site of Metro in the Lansdale area. And I'm telling you, it's a lot easier to do that than it was to plant the church here. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more challenging because you have to extend it outside of yourself, outside of your own provincial nature. The Spirit does that. The Spirit compels us and regenerates the heart to receive. Now, next, that's the upward. The next is the outward. Conversion takes place in the context of relationships. The Ethiopian here asks three questions. And all three questions tell us how the Spirit of God uses our relationships in our context to bring about conversion. And we see this in verse 31, verse 34, and verse 36. Verse 31, how can I, how can I, he says, how can I understand this? You know, as Philip asked, you know, do you know what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? Verse 34, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And verse 36, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? He asks these three questions. The first question, it goes like this. Beginning uh, in verse 27, we learn that this question is coming from an imperial official, this Ethiopian official who's in charge of the treasury in Ethiopia. In other words, this person is somewhat of the minister of finance in his country, a tremendous position of power. Tremendous, this person has uh, status. This person has power. This person has people under his charge. He's of high social order in class. He reports directly to the queen, Candace. He's literate. He's educated in an era, in a society of illiteracy. And he's reading from this book of Isaiah, and he's reading, uh, to read a book from that book, it's not like they carried around Bibles back then. You had to have a scroll. To be able to purchase a scroll, you had to have money. Scrolls were expensive because people littered. There were no printing presses back then. People had to write on these scrolls and you had to pay for that. So this person was a person of wealth and status and power. But he was confused. He was confused by what he was reading. And at that moment, the incredible timing of God, at that moment, Philip is running alongside this chariot. And he asks if, he's, if he really needs help, if, he's, if he understands what he's reading. And the Ethiopian, who is of this tremendously high social class and economic status and education, he could have easily said, well, that's insulting. I can get this on my own. I have it. I'm educated. I'm wealthy. I have status. Who are you? He could have easily said that. But he was humbled. 
That's all that it requires. The Spirit softening his heart, humbling his heart. And so he admits ignorance. He admits that he's confused. He says, how can I understand? How can I understand this? He asks for help. He says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Verse 31. And so he lets Philip inside this chariot. What does that mean? You don't just come to church and not let anyone in. You don't just come to church and uh, you just come and go. You're going to get something perhaps from the worship. You're going to learn something perhaps in that hour and 20-minute time period. But if you don't let anyone in, if you don't plug in, if you're going to come, you have to get in. Because if you don't plug in, you're going to be confused. Life is going to be confusing all the time. Very few people come to faith and wisdom. Very few people come to faith on their own. Very few people come to wisdom on their own. If you try on your own, your life really is not going to change. If you try to grow on your own, you're not going to change. You need community. That's the context for change, community. Couples, they say, well, we have each other. If you don't get plugged into the life of the church, what's really moving this church, you're not going to change. You may have one another, but you're also one. You came together because you have similar values. You came together, and you're, and you're going to challenge personal values. But to be able to, pl- there's nothing like being plugged into the life of a gospel community. It's going to challenge you. It's going to challenge all of your values together. That's the only way you're going to grow. You need community. Community is God's context for change. You need to be willing to admit that there are things that go beyond your pedigree, that go beyond your family's wisdom, beyond your own educational status or wealth. Things that your position will never be able to get you. Verse 31, he says, how can I understand this unless somebody explains it to me? And in verse 34, he says, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or somebody else? And Philip starts to explain And then you get to this last question. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Why didn't he just say, I get it. I get what you're saying. I want God to come into my life. Why can't he just say, listen, I get it. It's a a personal thing. You know, I think what you're saying here, the gospel, you know, it's a personal thing between me and God. I just need to do business with him and that's, we're good. Why couldn't he just say that? Why didn't he just say that? It's between me and him. He asks, why not baptize me here? Beyond all the things that the sacraments offer, beyond all the things that baptism represents, inherently in this, what this man is asking Philip to do is, you see me, you hear me, you're part of my experience of conversion. I want you to evaluate me. I want you to evaluate me and validate me. In other words, I'm letting you in Right? Letting him into his chariot is representative almost of becoming his friend. You're trustworthy, and you need a ride, but you're trustworthy. Baptize me. Validate me. Evaluate me. Baptism, in, in, in essence, is a communal act. If you've ever seen anyone baptized, there are vows and commitments that are made by the person who's being baptized, but then there are vows and commitments made by the rest of the congregation because what you're saying as a community is, We are evaluating, we see and we hear his experience, and we validate that it's real. That's what we're saying. You need somebody else to do that. You need somebody else to conduct that. Why? It's because we always need somebody else 
to interpret your experience. Think about this. Those of you who are dating, it happens all the time. You're talking to somebody or interested in dating, right? It happens all the time. You meet somebody and um, that person, uh, you know, you're texting each other. Today, te- you know, everything happens through text, right? You're texting each other. And texts are hard to interpret because, uh, you know, you, you read a text and texts can say one thing But then you read into it and you're not quite sure. You don't know the tone. You don't know really. You try to get into the mind of the person who's texting you. And so what do you do? You read this and you're like, well, this could mean like a million things. What do you do? Instantly, you go to another person, somebody you trust, and you say, hey, so here's the context. Here's what's going on. Now read this text. And that person says, "Uh, I don't think he's that into you, right? You know, I don't think, uh, you know, it happens more to men, actually, you know. She said hello. I think she likes me, you know. Um, And and so um, you you need somebody else to interpret your experience. You need somebody to validate your experience. Think about it this way. When you come to faith in Jesus, it always happens in the context of community. I mean, if you think you are a product of your own choice, coming to God on your own, in your own circumstances, in your own context, you're never going to change. That's, that will not change you. We are the product of, again, the upper, the upward. The Spirit is working in your life, drawing you into community. And actually, that's what changes you. So you've got to plug into it. You've got to plug into the life of the church. You've got to plug into community groups. You've got to engage and rub shoulders. Not just rub shoulders. You've got to really get in with people. Share life. Do life together. You can't let church be a place where you can express and advance your own personal agendas. You have to get into the agenda of the church. God's own purpose for you and community. So, the first point was the upward, the spirit is what generates and regenerates our hearts and moves us and compels us towards one another, towards change. The second we said is it's an outward experience that change and conversion never happens out in a vacuum. It happens in the context of relationships. So it's important then that for us, for us to get into relationships with one another. Lastly, the third point is that conversion is inward. And this, is, this part's amazing. What causes this conversion? If you look at verses 32 to 33, this Ethiopian, he's reading from a particular passage in Isaiah. And I'm going to read uh, for us uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 to 8. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. This man is confused. He's sitting in a chair and he's confused and he's asking, who is this talking about? Is this, talk, is this prophet talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip has now entered in. He's now sitting in this chariot with this man, this Ethiopian. And as they're reading from this particular passage, Philip is caught up to him. The timing was per- perfect for Philip to catch him, and Philip's explaining. He's explaining. He says he's told him about the good news of Jesus. He's telling him about the gospel. And, uh, and it, it all made sense to this man. This, this one episode has become, this narrative episode has become the climactic moment uh, in this Ethiopian's life. It's changing his life. And why do we know that? 
you got to put the pieces together. This man is powerful. He's wealthy. He's got status. He's successful. He's educated. But he's a eunuch. And that means that he paid a tremendous price to get to where he is. See, if you're a commoner and you've got some skills and you have some intelligence, you can make it to the top, but you're never going to be trusted as if you were royalty, as if you're part of the monarchy. And so you have to pay a price. To be able to reside among the female members of royalty so, you don't get to, so that it ensures you don't mix in, you have to make some sacrifices. You had to be castrated. You had to become a eunuch. And so this man, if you think about what he sacrificed, he sacrificed any prospect of having a family, any prospect of having children, of having descendants. He sacrificed, mutilated his own body to get ahead. He sacrificed his entire future of what things natural, normal people would want in life, and that is that they would want a family. They would want children. They would want to pass on their name. This man has sacrificed all that. And he's lived a very selfish life in a sense. And he's paid a tremendous price to get ahead, to become successful, to get educated for that matter. Now, you may say, wow, that is inhumane and appalling in those days for, to, to force somebody to do that. Really? That really shouldn't shock you. We live in a big city. Now they're saying Philadelphia, the metropolitan region, is reaching 6 million people. And Philadelphia, the inner city, is now the fastest rising city, fastest rising in all the country of people ages 25 to 39. We have the fastest rising class of people in the city, in that, uh, of, that, uh, of that demographic. And you know if you've lived in the city or near the city that it's hard to develop any real genuine relationship if you're in the midst of a career that demands your time that demands your studies, that demands rigor and work and hard work. It's hard to develop any real, genuine relationship that way. It's hard to build intimacy with people when you're constantly being taken away by work. You're paying a price for your work. You're paying a price to get ahead. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. Every one of us has seasons of work. Even ministers have to go through tremendous rigor, in, many, in a sense, to get ahead. So you start with your education from high school and you're sacrificing things in high school. You're sacrificing lots of stuff in high school. Then you get to college. And if you're really serious and if you've already figured out what you want to do, you're sacrificing a lot of time, a lot of sleep, a lot of genuine relationships. And then you get your job and it doesn't end because now you're working. You're working to make a name for yourself. You're constantly working. You're slaving away. And you're doing things. You're a perfectionist. You're very meticulous about our careers, right? And you're spending lots of time, lots of sleepless nights, lots of anxiety. It's taking a toll on your body. It's taking a toll on your family. It's taking a toll among your friends, your relationships, and then you get promoted. And you think, you know, as you rise, you think that life will get a little easier. You look for the day when you can kind of sit back. But in most careers where you rise, the responsibility rises with it. No one's just going to pay you money for the work you had once done. They're going to continue to pay, and you're going to rise in position and title and your responsibility and the time and the consumption of your life. That's what happens to get ahead. And then you change jobs because you want to cut back. Well, now you've got to start all over. And the cycle continues. Businessmen go through this. People in professional careers go through this. This Ethiopian has made it to the top. But... Spiritually, he's empty. 
and he's so empty, he's willing to travel hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles away to Jerusalem. He's on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and now he's on his way back. You know, he was coming, to, he went from Ethiopia, traveled all the way to Jerusalem to visit the temple, and now he's on his way back. He left his job, traveled tremendous distance. He weathered the elements in his chariot to worship in Jerusalem. He ignored the temples and the religious uh, rituals and the faiths of his own people to come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the God of the Bible. It's like many of us. Right now, spiritually, we're empty and dry because your life is, you know, your, your work is consuming you. Everything that you're placing tremendous amount of rigor and value in, it's consuming you. And so we're tired and we're struggling with our work and with our relationships, our business of the day. And we've made tremendous sacrifices so you don't feel like you can turn back. And you might be making money, but the dream that was supposed to be your career has sometimes been disillusioning. And you're overworked and you're burdened and you're lonely, but you're at the top. Now, you've paid a price. That's this Ethiopian. That's what's happened. This Ethiopian finally gets to Jerusalem only to realize that eunuchs are not allowed to enter the temple. The law forbids eunuchs to enter the temple. People who are sexually mutilated cannot enter. People who are broken physically cannot enter. And so he came this entire distance in his emptiness, in his seeking, in his soul searching. He's come all the way, and yet he cannot enter the temple of God to worship. And he's broken. And he's lost. And he feels rejected in all ways. And he's sacrificed so much to get to where he is. And there's, in all of us, there's this mixture of regret and confusion, spiritual turmoil. There's a sense of uncleanness and guilt and brokenness and regret. There's no dignity. And yes, he's wealthy. Yes, he's educated. But there's no glory. And so he's cast off and he's now coming back in his pilgrimage. He's in this chariot. He's returning. And he's pouring through Isaiah, this scroll of his, and he's trying to make sense out of what's written. And he's entered into the 50s chapters. Isaiah's got 50, 66 chapters. He's now in the 50s. And he's going chapter by chapter, and he's trying to make sense of this book. And he gets to, on one hand, you get to Isaiah chapter 56, which says, verses 3 to 5, we read in the call to worship, that eunuchs are in. Eunuchs can be included. But on the other hand, he's at chapter 53 and he's looking at it and he's saying, I don't, I don't get it. What's this talking about? What is this talking about? Because this book promises that someone like me can enter in and yet I could not get in. To the eunuchs, God promises, I will give you an everlasting name. You know, those of you who say you are dried up, that you are a dry tree, you can come in. You are not excluded. I will give you an everlasting name that's greater than sons and daughters, he says. And yet, he can't enter. The disappointment. And he's turned away. He's totally confused. The Bible says you don't have to be a dry tree. You're not going to be caught off. You're cut off. You're going to be, you're going to, you're going to have a name that's better than a son in an age when the most important thing that you could be, the, important, the most important thing that you could have in those days was a descendant. Not just to pass on your name, but your wealth, everything. They didn't have banks back then. You didn't have a 401k back then. All of your wealth was concentrated in what? Your children. This man had no children. Where is his wealth? 
Where is his legacy? What are you going to pass down? And so in that age when the most important thing to have is descendants, God promises the eunuch, you will have a name that's better than sons and daughters. How can I have a better name? I don't get it. I can't even enter the temple. I can't have descendants. How can I have a better name than sons and daughters? And it comes across this passage, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 to 8, which we just read. And he reads this part, he was cut off from the land of the living. This eunuch is asking, I want to know about this person. Who is this person? Is the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? I want to know. You see, I became a eunuch to gain access to royalty. I went to the top and I paid the sacrifice to get to the top. I want to know who this suffering servant is who voluntarily was at the top and yet sacrificed and worked his way to the ground, to the bottom. I want to know. I'm a eunuch, worked my way to the top. I want to know this person who voluntarily became a eunuch was cut off and descended to the depths to take my place. Can somebody explain that to me? I want to know about this person who's castrated from the Father, for people like me so that I can be, I can have a better name, an everlasting name, someone better than a son and daughter. And all of a sudden, Philip arrives and says, do you need help understanding this? You see what's going on here? The eunuch asks, is this prophet writing about himself or someone else? Philip explains, it's about Jesus. Let me sit with you. Let me explain. You see, sin is man substituting himself for God. That's us. We're substituting ourselves for God. So that's why we have to control everything. That's why we're constantly working. Because we want glory. We need glory. We want glory. What is glory? Glory is weight. You can look at it and say glory is weight. Glory is substance. Glory is significance. And so we're working for glory. We want glory. We need glory. We were built in a way to be glorious. And so we're working for it because we've substituted ourselves for God. That's what sin is. And we're paying a tremendous price for that, for that kind of glory, just like this eunuch. But salvation, the Philip says, let me explain to you about this one. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. In Jesus, God came and he paid the price. He paid our penalty. Jesus was cut off. Jesus was spiritually castrated so that we can be in, so that we could be whole. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was whole. Jesus fully obedient. Jesus had the glory. Jesus had the power. Jesus had the ultimate status, the ultimate wealth. Jesus had the name of Son of God. And yet, he was cut off. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the one time in all the Gospels that Jesus Christ did not refer to his God as Father. What he's saying is, I am cut off. I'm no longer a descendant. I'm no longer a son. I've been cut off. And so, what he's saying here is, I've lost access. I've lost glory. I've given up my status. I've given up my power. I've given up my wealth. I've become dry as a result. 
I've become empty as a result. I've dried up. I thirst. That's Jesus. And on the cross, with all that he sacrificed, he's become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You have to let this truth wash over you. You know, like waves of love washing over you. That's the only way that you're going to change. Try to change on your own, you can't change. No one ever changes on their own. Spouses, husbands, wives, sometimes you look at your spouse and you say, how in the world did this person end up the way he did? It's because he was on his own. It's because she was on his own, her own. You need context. You need the community in your life. You need God's community in your life. You need the spirit in your life because spirit, a lot of us, we've been running from the Father, not acknowledging the Father, rejecting the Father all the time. And in one day, we say, wow, maybe I need to look into this. You think you generated that on your own? That's the spirit of God drawing you in. You've been rejecting him, and the spirit is just drawing you in. God's spirit, God himself drawing you in. You have to let that truth, that God has never let us go, you have to let that truth wash over you like waves of love. That is what's going to change you. Knowledge alone, no change, insufficient. Resolved, I resolve this personally. It's like a, like a pet peeve of mine. Uh, several times a year, I get to go into Westminster Seminary, and I have the privilege of sharing in front of seminarians about my experience as a church planner, and usually there's some topic involved, and then there's always Q&A. And you hear the questions that come, and you know, I, for me, I have like an allergic reaction, you know, to, to those types of, certain types of questions. I have an allergic reaction. And you got to be gracious. You got to be kind. You got to answer the question. But I, I, I remind myself over and over, I will never hire people who are so much older in their time in seminary. Because I realize there's something about certain schools and something about school and some, you develop a certain type of righteousness and superiority that will kill churches. And so uh, I told myself, man, I'm going to draw in people who are younger and, and raise them. You know, treat them like a son and raise them. That's what we're going to do. Ultimately, you have to submit to the session and our staff. But, but that is a personal thing of mine. You know, I have, a, I have an allergic reaction to that. Um, and why I'm sharing this, because no, why? Because a lot of times knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge doesn't create change. Look at all the things that we've known about God in our lives. Has it changed you? It's insufficient. But to know that Jesus became a spiritual eunuch so that we who are mutilated, we who are broken, we who are just insufficient, inadequate, could become whole and enter in, that we have access to God personally through Jesus Christ. Jesus was torn away. Jesus was cut off. Jesus lost dignity to restore our dignity and to give us access. That's an amazing grace, isn't it? Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the love of God. That's what's going to change you. Not being hammered into change, that's subversion. The gospel and the kingdom of God advanced through conversion. We were melted into grace. That's the only way you're going to change, to be melted into grace. In fact, the act of baptism alone is letting the waves of God's grace wash over you with his love. That's really what it is. What's the immediate sign of that? What's an immediate sign of that change? Look at this text. Here's a middle-aged, religious, Jewish man 
taking a sexually messed up, irreligious black man from another country and culture and language group and calls him brother. Immediately, the gospel changes us. And he takes him to water and washes him clean. That's, the medi- that's what immediately happens. You have to let that shape you. We have to let that shape us. Not just to teach us, but to empower us, to renew us, to turn away from, you know, ourselves substituting for God, to turn to Christ who substituted himself for us, to let God's grace renew you, to let God's grace shape you, to let God's grace change you, to let God's grace cleanse you. Today, today, this week, will you let your new name your new status. Let it never get old. See yourself with new status, new position, a new name when you fail. See yourself with new status, new declaration, new name, a new relationship, new access, and it's real and it's perfect and one day it's going to become even more real. Not less real, but more real and more perfect because you can't worship anything else but God himself fully and holy, in your fullness, in the absolute richness of God's grace. You can look to that, but when you're disillusioned and when you're lonely and when you're broken and when you're in failure, let your new name take hold. And when you're sinful and you feel like you're running from God and you feel like rejecting God and you're angry at God sometimes, let your new name take hold because that will change you. Remember that. Will you let that change you this week? Let's pray.